I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. It's high noon for Friday, June 4th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or Join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also occasionally find me on Gab at I'm your moderator. And the merch site is www.cancelcotour.com. Today is the 135th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth, that's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You tried following the science, but the science was too fast for you, and you couldn't keep up. So you lost it somewhere, and now you're just stalking the science. <laughs> A warm Friday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. I see you. I feel your presence here. I don't know how you got here, but I hope you stay. And yes, you're going to hear me make fun of your deeply held beliefs. But don't worry. All you need to do is a little self-inventory and you'll quickly discover that you actually don't deeply hold any of those things. In fact, your beliefs are entirely content-free if you really meditate on it. You'll find out that all of the things you think are beliefs are just you repeating the slogans. Where did you get the slogans? Well, from TV, of course, or from Instagram or a celebrity. Because those are the best sources of all the slogans. And let's be realistic. You're not into doing work to know what you're talking about. You just assume that if you know enough of the slogans, you can say all of the things that everybody knows. And then you'll look smart. You might even go to one of those edgy things that only some of the people know. And you're going to shock the hell out of 3 or 4% of the communists. But you're never, ever going to convince anyone else anywhere that you know what you're talking about. But nonetheless, the point is not to punish you because we all understand how you got where you are You got tricked and misled. You were convinced that making posts on social media was the same as knowing things and was the same as political action or moral action. That's what they told you you were doing. Now, it is 100% 
your fault for not realizing that all that stuff is actually nothing. And it is 100% your fault that every time someone tells you some information that contradicts these things you believe everybody knows, that you get angry or you run and hide or you start calling that person racist and sexist and you reject your family and friends, all of that is 100% your fault. And you see, the thing is, you're not rejecting them because they're bad people, because you know that they're not bad people. You're rejecting them because they make you feel like a bad person for how little you know. And I understand how that might hurt you. But what you should understand is that the critical part of that equation is how little you know. And so what you're doing is you're rejecting friends and family members based on things you don't know anything about. So just think about what that is, commies, because I know you're familiar with the term bigotry, but I'm not sure you really know what it means. If you determine that someone else might be on the other team and you won't listen to them explain themselves, you can't prove anything they say wrong and you can't prove anything you say right, then your hatred is only bigotry. And that makes sense because... I'm sad to report to you. You inadvertently joined a hate movement. Yes, you were led around by the nose and you were promised candy or cookies. So you went along back to the little hut in the woods and you didn't notice that the wolf was disguised like your grandma. (laughs) And now the wolf is eating your leg, commies. Wake up. (laughs) Your grandmother doesn't even live in the woods. Although I do truly hope that the wolf didn't give your grandmother COVID. Now, it seems like this week has been entirely dominated by Fauci emails, especially the last couple days on my show. And... You know, it is a big issue out there, but it's not the only issue. And the couple days that we've had on this, and now there's more emails, 3,000 more emails got dropped. I haven't even taken a look, so I cannot talk about that today. But spending a good amount of time on the Fauci emails is obviously worth it. Anthony Fauci has spent the last 15 or 16 months dominating the public conversation in the United States as he somehow gives the wrong scientific response to every question he's asked and then calls it science. And we know he's lying because the emails show he's lying. We actually knew he was lying because we have eyes and ears and full-size adult brains, and we could just detect it based on the things that he says and does and the way he acts. 
But it's not the only thing out there. Remember, the main point is that we get to the bottom of November 3rd. And the audits are continuing. Rachel Maddow did this long thing last night. And I'm not going to put the audio on. It's in the info stream. You can watch the whole thing in its entirety. But I don't want to like have all these shows just being about making fun of how Rachel Maddow is having an on-air mental breakdown nearly every episode. She's freaking out now because the audits are obviously expanding to include more places around the country. Pennsylvania is probably close to announcing theirs. Donald Trump is also putting pressure on the Pennsylvania legislators to get this thing to happen. In Georgia, Vernon Jones and some other people are heading down to Arizona next week to check out the Maricopa audit. And the Maricopa audit is, in fact, becoming the basis for a gold standard of audits around the country. And I hope that every single place has an audit as thorough as the Maricopa audit. And I think we're going to find out a whole lot of things that we believe about American politics just happen to not be true. Like, for instance, how many black voters actually support Democrats? I think we're going to find it's not nearly 95%. Although I would expect that perhaps black voters do represent 95% of the votes that Democrats steal. And it's always in the cities where Democrats do so well. And why? Well, because black people in the cities vote for Democrats. Why? Well, who knows? Democrats do promise black Americans tons and tons of things, but black Americans who live in those cities may have recognized that even while having Democrat leadership for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years, conditions don't really improve. In fact, in places like Chicago right now, conditions are as bad as they've ever been. Just shootings constantly. Who do you think that negatively impacts? But where would be the one place, the one demographic that Democrats could easily steal votes from that no one would ever question based on all the things that we're told everybody knows? Well, it's urban black people. We are consistently told that Democrats have massive majorities in every one of these Democrat cities because the large African-American communities in those cities support Democrats so strongly that it's just millions and millions of extra votes. So when we find that 10 or 20 or 25 million Democrat voters, in quotes, simply do not exist, what population are we to imagine those voters ostensibly come from? Well, again, 
I'm just speculating, just riffing here. But I have a feeling it's the exact group that they say runs up their huge margins in all these places. Black and brown people. How many illegal immigrants are voting? These are going to be very interesting questions. And I think that we are probably going to see that Democrats are not getting the support from minority communities that they say they are and that the quote unquote results of all these elections say they are. But hey, good luck, commies. I'm sure nothing is wrong. Rachel Maddow's freak out, though, was all about what might happen if this keeps happening. Because the GOP is now totally all about shutting down the ability of other people to vote. They want voting regulations. They're going to disenfranchise people. And we know what people they're disenfranchising. They're disenfranchising our ability to steal black people's votes. Ipso facto, they hate black people. That's Rachel Maddow's argument. We need to prohibit voter ID to protect the ability of black people to vote. Because everybody knows, of course, that these urban black people that consistently always vote for Democrats can't get ID. It's impossible. And rather than just creating a program so that black Americans who ostensibly can't get ID could actually have ID. What we should do is we should make it so that no one has to show an ID. And that's how we're going to have a safe voting system, even though 46 out of 47 countries in Europe require voter ID. Pretty much every intelligent place in the world requires voter ID. And why? Oh, it's so that you can guarantee a real person is voting. <laughs> you know, that crazy idea. But we're meant to believe that black voters can't get IDs. And us assuming that's true is not racist. It's not stereotyping. It's not prejudice. It doesn't rely on the idea that black people in certain communities are stupid or incapable, or like Joe Biden says, simply can't use the internet. No, it's a show of compassion. We are willing to compromise the integrity of our entire election just to make sure that there's not a single black person out there who can't vote, even though voting is... Yeah, okay. Voting is more complicated than getting an ID. Yeah, you're right. Got it. I don't know. I guess I must have screwed up there in the Democrat logic. But the real crazy thing is that I think the last poll I read said 72% of black voters want voter ID. So we are destroying democracy by demanding voter ID because it's going to disenfranchise black people, even though there's no logic behind that part. 
And they're going to protect democracy by doing something for black people that 72% of black people don't want done. Got that? So a small portion of black people and the entirety of the Democrat Communist Party and woke America think that what's best for black people is to do something 72% of black people don't want. Now, I am not a critical race theorist. I don't have my doctorate degree, my PhD, in something that some woke professor literally just made up and then decided to give out doctorates for it. I'm not that kind of smart. But it seems to me that a white power structure that is now dominated by a fake president who was mentored by a Klansman telling black America that something needs to be done for their benefit, even though they don't want it. And that thing will ultimately reduce the power of their vote to nothing. Well, Again, not a professor of race. But it sounds like that might be the sort of thing that people wanting to promote a white supremacist power structure might actually be for. Could be wrong, could be wrong. I don't know the ins and outs of all this race stuff. I haven't had to figure out all the nitty gritty about how to make totally illogical things sound like they're not racist. That's not something I spend a lot of time on because I'm not a Democrat communist. So maybe I am wrong. I mean, they would say, well, it can't be racist because we're doing this thing to protect these people, even if they don't want it and trust us. It does protect them. The truth is, they just don't know what's good for them. I can't understand stuff like that because I'm not a Democrat communist. But one of the things Maddow never stops doing, I swear to God, she calls that audit fake and so-called audit more than I say commie. (laughs) She thinks it's all a conspiracy theory. The election audit is a conspiracy theory. They're just doing this so that they can make up a number and trick all the dummies on the Trump side. That's really the line she's selling. I'm not misstating what her argument is. That's it. The audit has round-the-clock video monitoring of everything that happens. It's being done at the request of the Arizona Senate. Judges have allowed it to go forward. A hundred Democrat attorneys coming in to wage lawfare against the audit has failed. And last night, Rachel Maddow admitted that the Department of Justice 
is not coming in to rescue them. So the only thing that can save them at the federal level is to pass H.R. 1. And so she's mad at Joe Manchin because he and Kristen Cinema aren't going to blow up the filibuster to pass that ridiculous bill. Every element of that bill goes to make elections less secure. It's not a mystery what they're doing. She says that's the only thing that can save them. Imagine for a second, though, that Rachel Maddow might occasionally get something wrong. She's saying that the election audit in Maricopa County is fake or illegitimate somehow. What that is, is a conspiracy theory. What that would require is these hundreds of normal American volunteers, people who voted for Democrats or Republicans or neither, In last year's election, everyone who volunteers has to be someone that voted last year, someone with skin in the game. All of them on round the clock videotape would have to be in on it, right? Or at least a substantial portion of them. And if they weren't all in on it, the people who were in on it, they would have to be pretty sly to get around the fact that it's being monitored by video. The entire time. And of course, communists like Rachel Maddow would be like, well, yeah, but they could totally be doing that. They could definitely be doing that. Okay, Rachel. So what's better then? Is it better to just have people off the street that you select with no background check being done? Sit in these election centers or polling places deciding exactly what they want to do. And then when people monitor them, they cover up windows with cardboard. They pull ballots out from under tables. They run ballots through a machine over and over and over again. And when videotape comes out of them doing these things, they have the tech companies shut that video down so no one can see it. Which one sounds more legitimate? The Maricopa audit being a fraud or a scam? That's a conspiracy theory. That would require all sorts of people to be in on it. And it would require some level of magic because they're being videotaped the entire time and no one's seeing the fraud No one's seeing the scam and representatives from all around the country are going down to see how this should be done. The Maricopa audit is setting a model for the world. And Rachel Maddow says she's scared about it. She's scared about it because this could lead to civil war, you know, just like the very violent insurrection, or it could lead to the mass disenfranchisement of black voters, even though black voters want voter ID. And again, you come to one of those rooted truth moments where you say, hey, if 72% of black voters want voter ID, that sounds like a really, really big chunk of people who have gone through the mental steps to justify that belief since everyone tells them 
that they're supposed to believe the opposite thing. They would have actually had to think about it to not believe the standard commie slogan. Do you think those people aren't open to the idea that elections are already fraudulent? Do you think that the black American community doesn't have some inkling that elections have been fraudulent for a really long time? Is that what you think, Kami? I would beg to differ. I bet they've thought about it. Kind of like how they've thought about vaccines, too. You know, because they have to. Why? Because the public health community has decided that they should be the ones to experiment on before. And it wasn't that long ago, a few months, where all of the communist governors around the country were talking about how vaccine distribution should be handled on an equity basis and that black people should be the first to receive this experimental gene therapy that they are now calling a vaccine. But thank goodness we don't have to deal with any of that because we know that Democrat communists are so not racist, which is why they are constantly looking for a new issue that they can take hold of and then run around everywhere on social media and in real life screaming, hey, 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 look, I'm not racist about this. <laughs> hey, check out, check out how much I like George Floyd. I'm not racist. Hey, check out my black square. Hey, you know, I'm not racist. Check out this black square. Congratulations, commies. You're the smart ones. Now let's get into the big stuff. And by the big stuff, I'm talking about Mike Lindell's case that he dropped yesterday. The video came out absolutely nine zero. And I hope people have watched that. If you haven't, you should. It is true that they seem to have absolutely everything. And it's hard right now to say where exactly they got everything from. But it was recorded on election night and the nights following as the vote was counted in multiple states. And even after election night, they still have recorded proof of data being transferred from election centers overseas, manipulated, and then sent back. Okay? So, unless there is something totally unforeseen that can somehow disprove this, it's pretty clear that everything that was said by Chris Krebs and anyone else about the election being safe and secure and not subject to foreign manipulation is just flatly dead wrong. And I'm aware of the hand-wringing about whether they can prove it in court or whether they can even have it seen in court. And I'll say what I said yesterday, which is the way we make sure that happens is by making sure everyone knows what happened, all right? The public pressure is what's going to see this through. If everybody bails out and waits 
to be saved and doesn't put pressure on public officials to deal with this, then it goes away. And that's been true the entire time. The reason we're still here at this point now, seven months later, is because we haven't stopped and we're not going to stop. Rachel Maddow can do all the segments she wants about how dumb and crazy everyone else is. But that number of dumb and crazy people in her mind is growing and growing and growing. Now, there are two things that jump out to me about Mike Lindell's case, and I'm about 25% of the way through it. I haven't read the entire thing yet. But even at this point, you can see that this case hinges on two things. One is that the case defines Dominion and its co-conspirators as state actors on the basis of the fact that such a broad segment of American elections are controlled in part or completely by Dominion. And they have government contracts to do all this, and that makes them a state actor. So that's one of the things that the case is going to hinge on. They have to accept that Dominion is, in fact, a state actor. And it seems obvious to me that they fulfill that requirement. But, of course, these things remain to be seen. The other factor is that they're going after Dominion on a RICO case. And RICO stands for Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. Now, this is from Justia. The federal racketeering-influenced and corrupt organizations law was passed in 1970 as the ultimate hitman in mob prosecutions. Prior to RICO, prosecutors could only try mob-related crimes individually. Since different mobsters perpetrated each crime, the government could only prosecute individual criminals instead of shutting down an entire criminal organization. Today, the government rarely uses RICO against the mafia. Instead, because the law is so broad, both governmental and civil parties use it against all sorts of enterprises, both legal and illegal. RICO allows for prosecution of all individuals involved in a corrupt organization. For mob prosecutions, that means the government can go after top leadership as well as the hitmen and capos. And RICO established much enhanced sentences as well. John L. Smith described the impact of RICO in an article for the Las Vegas Review Journal. After RICO, mob families began to crack under the very real threat that members and associates could be indicted en masse for a wide range of criminal activity. Even the strongest stand-up guy would have trouble facing the 20-year and more sentences that began accompanying RICO convictions. While RICO was originally aimed at the mafia, over the past 37 years, prosecutors have used it to attack many forms of organized crime, street gangs, gang cartels, corrupt police departments, and even politicians. And then they go on to criminal RICO. To violate RICO, a person must engage in a pattern of racketeering activity connected to an enterprise. The law defines 35 offenses as constituting racketeering, including gambling, murder, kidnapping, arson, drug dealing, and bribery. Significantly, mail and wire fraud are included on the list. These crimes are known as predicate offenses. To charge under RICO, at least two predicate crimes within 10 years must have been committed through the enterprise. 
Note that an enterprise is required. This might be a crime family, a street gang, or a drug cartel, but it may also be a corporation, a political party, or a managed care company. The enterprise just has to be a discrete entity, but an enterprise is not the same as an individual. Thus, a corporation may be the enterprise through which individuals commit crimes, but it can't be both an individual and an enterprise. The criminal RICO statute provides for for prison terms of 20 years and severe financial penalties. The law also allows prosecutors to attach assets so they can't be whisked out of the country before judgment. Civil RICO. Even though RICO threatens very long prison terms for racketeers, the law's real power is its civil component. Anyone can bring a civil suit if they've been injured by a RICO violation, and if they win, receive treble damages. In the 1980s, civil lawyers attempted to fit many different claims inside of RICO, but in the 1990s, the federal courts set up a number of hurdles for civil RICO claims. To succeed on a RICO claim, a plaintiff must show, one, criminal activity. You must show that the defendant committed one of the enumerated RICO crimes, which include the broad crimes of mail and wire fraud. If you bring a claim on a fraud basis, however, the court will apply strict scrutiny. Two, pattern of criminal activity. One crime is not enough. You have to show a pattern of at least two crimes. A pattern requires the crimes be related in some way. Same victim, same method, same participants, or continuous, meaning it was conducted over at least a year. Three, within the statute of limitations. The Supreme Court held that RICO has a four-year statute of limitations, which begins tolling from the time the victim discovers his or her damages. RICO is powerful and complex. If you think you've been seriously injured by criminal activity that is covered by RICO, consult with a lawyer to see if you have a case. But make sure it's worth the effort. RICO's civil suits can be very costly. All right. So that's some background about what a RICO case is. And that is the basis for Mike Lindell's suit. So the case is arguing that Dominion has committed a whole slew of crimes, really. But it's an enterprise doing it, and it is coordinated, and there are crimes being committed all over the place by a bunch of discrete individuals, but all in service of this enterprise. And they have set Dominion up as a state actor because it is illegal under the First Amendment for a state actor to be punishing and threatening political speech, which is what Dominion has been doing. They have been harassing individual American citizens who signed affidavits about their firsthand experience witnessing election fraud. They have gone after people like Mike Lindell and his company because Mike Lindell won't stop talking about how Dominion is obviously a criminal organization. And so I want to take the time to run people through the overview section of Lindell's case because it gives you at least a surface understanding of what's going on here and the facts on which this case will hinge. This is what needs to be proven in a court of law. And they quote George Orwell right up at the top of this segment. We can only spread our knowledge outwards from individual to individual, generation after generation. In the face of the thought police, there is no other way. And this is something that I've talked about on this podcast 
countless times. And this is what I talk about when I discuss the information stream and the speed of information. So what has happened with the advent of television and then the Internet and then social media is that the way we began to receive information and then communicate information with our peers shifted dramatically away from people to talk from people talking to one another about what they understand about what's happening. And instead we get the large voice telling us what's right and what's wrong and how to think of the people who don't agree with us, which is really just agreeing with the television. One, Mike Lindell brings this lawsuit to stop electronic voting machine companies from weaponizing the litigation process to silence political dissent and suppress evidence showing voting machines were manipulated to affect outcomes in the November 2020 general election. Fact, this is two. Electronic voting machines and software can be hacked through a cyber attack, thereby allowing data flowing through those devices to be manipulated, stolen, or altered. Three, fact. It is indisputable that the electronic voting machines and software manufactured and sold by Dominion and Smartmatic are vulnerable to cyber attacks before, during, and after an election, and in a manner that could easily alter election outcomes. Election security expert and University of Michigan science and engineering professor J. Alex Halderman and others have given sworn testimony of this fact, and that is true. Again, you can watch Kill Chain, and you can... Look up all this stuff about people's past statements, how they were out there trying to expose that all these machines could be hacked and election results could be changed just in the off chance that they that their plan failed and that the cheating didn't work and that Trump was announced as the winner of the 2020 election as he was in 2016. So all of this through 2018 and 2019, mostly we had officials on all levels talking about how easy it was to steal elections with these machines. And J. Alex Halderman is actually the guy in Michigan who, quote unquote, debunked the forensic audit of Antrim County, which is where Matthew DiPerno has his case. Back to the lawsuit. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris, along with other Democratic senators, said the same thing during a Senate hearing prior to the November 2020 general election. And so they have that footnoted as well. Four, fact. Direct and circumstantial evidence demonstrates during the 2020 general election, electronic voting machines like those manufactured and sold by Dominion were manipulated and hacked in a manner that caused votes for one candidate to be tallied for the opposing candidate. Five, fact. Voting machine companies like Dominion are state actors by virtue of their roles running elections in the United States, an essential state function. Six, fact, the First Amendment guarantees the right of citizens such as Mike Lindell to express political dissent and espouse beliefs without fear of intimidation, suppression or punishment from state actors like voting machine companies that provide election equipment and run elections for government agencies. And this will eventually apply to the social media companies as well. Seven, fact. 
Following the 2020 general election, Mike Lindell gathered and publicly shared information from various sources demonstrating that voting machines were, in fact, the target of cyber attacks in the November 2020 general election. Such evidence includes Dr. Douglas Frank's analysis showing conclusively that an algorithm was employed to manipulate votes in the 2020 general election and evidence of hacking of electronic voting machines by China and other nation state actors, including 20 such hacks, primarily by actors in China, that alone changed the outcomes in the presidential race in the 2020 general election. And Exhibit 12 from this case was widely shared on Telegram yesterday, and that shows 24 of these hacks that by themselves would have overturned the fake pro-Biden results of the 2020 election. Eight, fact. In response to Mike Lindell's public statements about the evidence he had gathered, Dominion Voting Systems and its lawyers at Claire Locke LLP threatened Mike Lindell with financial ruin if he did not cease his public expression of his political speech regarding the debacle that was the use of electronic voting machines in the 2020 general election. Nine, fact. When Mike Lindell refused to be intimidated into giving up his First Amendment right to political free speech, Dominion sued him for $1.3 billion in federal court in Washington, D.C., a jurisdiction where neither Lindell nor Dominion reside, and outside the jurisdiction where Lindell made the vast majority of the statements Dominion complains about. 10. Fact. Dominion has weaponized the legal process and intimidated witnesses to election fraud by suing or threatening to sue over 150 private individuals or organizations, including dozens of citizen volunteer poll watchers with baseless defamation lawsuits or cease and desist letters from Dominion's lawyers at Claire Locke. Dominion further publicly boasts of doing so merely because those citizens signed affidavits regarding fraudulent or illegal activities they personally observed during the November 2020 general election. Dozens of those citizens never mentioned Dominion or issues with any electronic voting machines. Yet Dominion and Claire Locke still threatened these witnesses, citizen volunteers performing a public service with ruinous litigation and onerous demands that they preserve even private communications. 11. Fact. Smartmatic has engaged in similar weaponization of the court system to attack other individuals and news outlets merely for publicly sharing information they have gathered regarding vulnerabilities in and attacks on electronic voting machines in the 2020 general election. 12. Fact. A full forensic audit of the vote in the fourth most populous county in the United States, Maricopa County, Arizona, is currently being conducted. That audit includes an audit of Dominion's voting machines used in that county as ordered by the Arizona Senate to restore integrity to the election process. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and various Democrat-affiliated groups have spent months attempting to thwart or obstruct the audit, efforts that have been repeatedly rebuffed in court. This includes refusing to turn over routers to which Dominion machines were connected and which, which will show the details regarding the Dominion machines' connectivity to the Internet. The Maricopa County officials have also admitted they do not possess the administrative passwords to the Dominion voting machines, meaning Dominion employees had control over the election. Dominion joined the Democrat-led chorus to smear the audit and has refused to cooperate with the auditors, including refusing to turn over the administrator passwords to the voting machines. Fact, forensic audits, this is 13, sorry, I'm getting excited here. 
Forensic audits and investigations of the November 2020 election and the role of voting machines and electronic voting systems are currently underway, either by court order or by direction of state legislatures or attorneys general in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, and New Hampshire. 14. Conclusion. Dominion, Smartmatic, and others are desperate to cover up gross security flaws in their electronic voting systems and information showing cyber attacks and hacking in the November 2020 election by uniting in a common purpose to use the litigation process to attempt to suppress the revelation and public discussion of these truths. 15. This new fledgling era of lawfare must be stopped before it is allowed to gain a toehold of acceptance in the U.S. judiciary and the courts become yet another weapon for wealthy corporations and the powerful politicians they support to silence speech and ideas they deem unacceptable to their narrative. So that is where this case is going. And if you have the time and the desire to read the lawsuit, it is in the information stream on Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. I posted it sometime late afternoon or evening yesterday, June 3rd. It shouldn't be that hard to find. It's on Scribd. And of course, the Fauci stuff is still going. Joe Biden took questions from reporters today very briefly, and he shuffled out of the room as one reporter yelled out, hey, fake president, do you still have confidence in Anthony Fauci? And Joe Biden responded, yes, I'm very confident in Dr. Fauci. So that's really something. Either, like Joe Biden actually came back in the room to answer that. He'd already made it out into the hallway. So he didn't get the memo, I guess, from the entire Democrat Communist Party that Fauci's supposed to be the fall guy, or maybe they've actually decided that they're going to double down on Fauci, or maybe they're happy to throw Joe Biden to the wolves as well. But it has only gotten worse for Anthony Fauci. As I said, 3,000 more emails came out last night. Again, I haven't gotten to them. But people around Anthony Fauci have been doing interviews, and one of them is Admiral Brett Giroir who was primarily responsible in the COVID task force last year for overseeing all the logistics about getting testing supplies everywhere around the country that they were, quote unquote, needed. I mean, I know that Donald Trump supported widespread testing as well. Great, fine, whatever. The testing obviously has its problems. However, that job was done. It was clearly not done well enough. But in terms of what he was tasked with, which was getting testing supplies all around the country, he seemed to take his job seriously. And he seemed, for the most part, to be the most honest member of the task force and also highly competent. And here is Admiral Jawa with uh, Bill Hemmer on Fox. I do, and and I really became uh, convinced of that with the WHO report in March, which showed definitively that there was no environmental source, there was no intermediary host, there was really nothing linking this to any virus in the natural world. But on the other side, the uh, evidence was becoming compelling. Look, there was a laboratory within five miles of the origin that was doing dangerous research on bat coronaviruses. 
um, you know, sometimes the simplest explanation is, is that. We do have lab leaks. They've happened multiple times. Uh, SARS has leaked out of laboratory and even caused secondary deaths. We know that in 1979, anthrax leaked out of a Soviet laboratory and killed 60 people. So lab leaks are not uncommon. And I really think data like people getting ill in November from the laboratory, if that proves true, that coincides exactly when we know this virus Okay, gets now, I got so a number of questions here. Let's, yeah, let's go through yeah. it now. Why didn't you say this a year ago? So I did say it a year ago. Uh, I was very clear that the only thing we knew was that there were no obvious fingerprints of this virus being engineered. I always kept open and was very public about it that it could have been a lab leak. That was in distinction uh, from Dr. Fauci, who really argued very, uh, you know, very convincingly that this was uh, something that evolved in nature. There was no data that showed it evolved in nature, and there's still no data that okay. showed it. Okay, all right, now. Got that? So he's saying in no uncertain terms that there was never any basis for the claim that the virus jumped from nature. But he does hedge and say that he couldn't see the clear fingerprints of the virus having been engineered. And that's fine. On one side, we have the fact that there is a bioweapons lab in Wuhan. We are doing the work with the Chinese Communist Party. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is funded with U.S. taxpayer money. The Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses, and we weren't allowed to talk about it, and the government wasn't allowed to investigate it. In fact, People in the State Department said that we shouldn't look into the origins anymore because it might lead to problems. So that's the evidence on one side. And that's just a portion of the evidence on one side. But that stuff has been around. On the other side, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever except the claim that similar viruses have jumped from animal to human before, although they can't really prove that either. Again, the lab was doing research to figure out how a bat coronavirus could infect humans. On one side, we have all that. On the other side, we have admittedly nothing except a theoretical parallel to prior viruses. And smart people are expected to give both of those claims the same weight and not only give them the same weight, but lean in favor of the idea that the virus came from nature because the experts say so. Trust the experts. Trust the experts. Trust the science. Trust the experts. Trust the data. Do you know the data? Show me the data. And Jawa goes on to explain that for his role in particular, in terms of getting logistics and testing supplies out, the origin of the virus was on some level irrelevant to him performing his job function. And on some level, I can accept that answer. 
unfortunately, the origin of the virus actually should matter even with that stuff. Because had we known and accepted that the origin of the virus was a Wuhan lab, then we would be looking at the situation entirely differently. Okay, we wouldn't be looking at this as some science experiment where it's really important to know everything we can about the disease by testing millions and millions of asymptomatic healthy people. That is retarded. Okay, we wasted incalculable levels of resources, specifically time and money. On setting up this massive testing regime bigger than anywhere else in the world. And we did that on the advice of people like Anthony Fauci, who convinced the public that the best way to contain the virus would be to test everyone all the time and then quarantine them, even while knowing that 90% of the tests at the cycle threshold they were using, would produce false positives. But the real question that must be asked is how different our response would have been if we knew this was from a lab leak. You see, if we knew it was from a lab leak, we would have a source, we would know China is involved, and we would know that we should not trust the public health community, the very same people who conducted this research and then allowed a leak of this virus, we shouldn't trust them at all. But that's not how we handled it. We covered up for China, specifically Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and the public health community. They covered for China and they let us down all of these false responses that did absolutely nothing to help with the problem. It also served to divide us because the idea that this is a naturally occurring thing that just happened means that we can't blame anyone for the origin, but we can blame the president for how it's handled. And as a country, we actually don't need to unite against the Chinese Communist Party, and we don't need to find responsible actors in the public health community to guide policy, we can trust Anthony Fauci to do whatever Anthony Fauci says and forget about China completely. Focusing on China as the problem and our response being a response centered around combating a bioengineered virus given to us by the Chinese Communist Party. That's something Americans would unify around. And they would actually want their president to take steps to punish the perpetrators and secure the country against the actual threat. Instead, we're 18 months into this, and those things haven't happened. And whose advantage does that play to? Well, I would say the country that created this overt act of war biologically, informationally against the United States. And it plays into the hands of people like Anthony Fauci and the public health community. And 
It plays into the hands of the Democrat Communist Party, who were willing to do whatever it takes to destroy Donald Trump because they were looking at getting absolutely destroyed in the election. And of course, they still did get absolutely destroyed in the election. And everybody's going to know that soon enough. But this is the sort of thing that desperate people in that situation would do. Does anyone think that the Democrat Communist Party could have played this whole situation to their advantage by making sure we get universal mail-in ballots everywhere and setting it up as soon as the disease comes out? Oh, yeah, we're going to need to lock down forever. Locking down isn't even good public health policy. That's not a best practice. That was just something they decided on. The country could have been united in fighting this if we were told the truth about where the virus came from, which is exactly why they hit it. But let's listen to some words from the Nazi doctor. The mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. This could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated the way the mutations have naturally evolved. Got that? Keep that in mind when you hear Anthony Fauci say that he never said it couldn't have come from a lab. It just didn't seem likely. Right there, he said that it couldn't. Okay? And he said it based on the mutations. And that string of mutations showed that it would have jumped from an animal to a human. Now, remember what I talked about on the Saturday episode. It would have been Friday, but it was Saturday. About the piece in the Daily Mail. That study showing that not only was it clear beyond reasonable doubt that it could not have had a natural origin, they also found that the evidence shows the lab was continuing to produce variants, retro-engineering the virus so that it would look like the whole time the virus came from nature, which is exactly the explanation you just heard Anthony Fauci give. Okay? So the strong, overwhelming likelihood here is that Anthony Fauci not only knew Then, this is from May of last year, those audio clips. He not only knew then where the virus came from, he was also aware of the retro engineering set up to make the virus look like it came from nature. Now, let's check in with NIH director Dr. Francis Collins on the Hugh Hewitt show. And by the way, War Room gave excellent coverage of this interview today. And if you're not watching War Room or listening to War Room, I don't understand why. It's the best. It just is the best. I think so crucial to maintaining NIH credibility, which I think is vital. Let me go to the EcoHealth Alliance. Again, I'm a general counsel of two federal agencies in the past. I know how this stuff works. When you give a grant, the money ends up going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology through the EcoHealth Alliance. 
you're inevitably supporting all the research at any grantee because overhead is built into every grant. Now, there were two five-year grants. One was terminated according to NPR. Doesn't that put the federal government in the position of having supported WIV at some level for some function? Because money is fungible. Well, we when we give a grant, Hugh, it has terms attached to it of what it is that the grantee is supposed to be doing with those funds. And we require uh, annual reports to see whether that, in fact, is what they have been doing. And we trust the grantee to be honest and not deceptive. The grant funds that went to Wuhan, which were a subcontract from EcoHealth, were very specifically aimed to try to categorize viruses that they could isolate from bats in Chinese caves, which we had a good reason to want to know more about, given SARS and MERS that had come out of there. And so uh, we basically have those criteria attached to the grant. And of course, the amount of money that we were providing to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I'm sure it was a tiny fraction of their total funding. And we had no control over what else they were doing with those funds. That's another thing we'd like to know more about and an investigation might potentially tell us. So they have, so, according to the uh, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, they had collected 15,000 samples because of the grant, including 400 new coronaviruses. Uh, I have a larger question about whether that's a good idea, period, to go looking for the viruses that can then subsequently escape from labs, possibly. But more importantly, what I do know a lot about from my time at Justice and the White House back in the days is the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I don't know why we would ever trust the Chinese Communist Party, doctor. Even if EcoHealth Alliance is made up of great American scientists, they get 90% of their money from the federal government. So it looks to an outsider like a pass-through and a cutout organization that somehow gets money to the Chinese. And I wouldn't trust the CCP scientists because they, they don't have freedom of science like we do in the United States. You can tell people to pound sand. They can't do that. They'll end up in a gulag in Xinjiang. <laughs> well, Hugh, again, let me just try to argue, although I'm not sure you're convinced of it. Okay, we have had prior to SARS-CoV-2 as a terrible pandemic, two other episodes of very serious coronaviruses that emerged apparently from bats in China. We at the NIH uh, have to think about what the next risk is going to be. Remember, thousands of people died from SARS. Do we really want to just sort of say, well, we can't investigate that because it involves China and they have some political issues that we're a bit uncomfortable with? I think that would be irresponsible. So if we had the chance, to learn more about those viruses. Remember, the, when a pandemic happens, it's not limited to any part of the world, it's, it's global. If we have a chance to learn more about those in a fashion where we have an agreement about what research is to be done and that the results are supposed to be shared, shouldn't we be doing that? Or should we just basically close up and say, we're just not gonna work with any country that has politics we're uncomfortable with? I don't think that would be responsible. Doctor, that's a kind of a shift. It's not that we have political issues with the government that we're a bit uncomfortable with. What I perhaps have a little advantage over you is I did counterintelligence at the Department of Justice. They are not uh, political issues with which we are uncomfortable. It's a totalitarian state that executes people, suppressed Hong Kong and runs prison camps, and a gulag, and in fact, about which we have call called genocide in the last two years. When the grant was made, that was not the case. I understand the danger. But when 
we combine my two issues, non-responsiveness to Kathy McMorris Rogers with the nature of a totalitarian Chinese communist regime, we have the reason for congressional oversight. Maybe we wouldn't be here with American money going to the CIV if oversight had gone effectively deep into the NIH policies and not through a cutout organization, EcoHealth Alliance. Does that make sense to you why my expertise would say, gosh, no, we're never giving money to the Chinese communist government, ever? I'm still not convinced uh, that you're making a case that would change our responsibility as the leading organization for pursuing biomedical research in the world, including overseeing risks of a global pandemic. The one thing that keeps us all up at night, we still had to figure out the best way, not a perfect way, to try to gain that information to prepare for what might be a troubling problem downstream. So I, I think we had to do what we had to do. I'm totally open uh, to defending that and to being as transparent as possible in the appropriate place about what exactly we did fund and what we did not fund. But I think when the dust all settles, a reasonable person will say we were doing what NIH should do to try to protect the public against a terrible outbreak. Now that's it. That's a philosophical problem, doctor, because the question becomes, is there any regime that NIH would not fund directly or through a cutout organization? Does, does the, would you give money to North Korea, which everybody knows is the worst actor in the world? I mean, would you give them, they've got bats in North Korea as well, would you send them money? Probably not. <laughs> Again. Now, apologies for the long clip, but I think it's good to hear all of that. The primary defense for what happened and how the NIH operates is that they trust the doctors who admittedly have connections to the Chinese Communist Party. And Hewitt mentioned, well, they have prison camps, they've taken over Hong Kong. But that's not a problem for Francis Collins. And then he would ask him specifically, would you give money to North Korea? And he's like, oh, well, no, we wouldn't give money to North Korea. Everybody knows North Korea is a problem. What? North Korea does what China says and arguably what the CIA says. And that may, in fact, be what makes Kim Jong-un so mad. But Francis Collins has no problem making the moral judgment that North Korea is not someone whose biowarfare program we should be funding, while at the same time arguing that China is just fine because they have experts over there, some of the best virologists in the world. <laughs> and of course, because we trained them here and gave them all our secrets, and then we sent them back over to China. Is the argument that we don't have the facilities in the United States of America to be doing those things? Well, of course we do, but we weren't allowed to do gain of function here. So, oh, yeah, that's why it's in China. And apparently the fact that they are a brutal communist regime, every bit as evil as the Nazi party, it doesn't matter that we are doing important biowarfare research with them as a partner. And Collins is saying that all of this stuff 
it would be neglectful if we weren't doing it because what might happen is we might get a pandemic and then we might be on our back foot in handling the pandemic because we didn't have access to all of this amazing research. How was anyone convinced that that's true? The only way you can be convinced that that's true is that you have such a distorted view about life and death. They literally decided to create the virus that would cause a pandemic in service of figuring out how to defeat a virus that was causing a pandemic, even though no virus was doing that. And even though they had to add to this virus, the feature that it could infect humans. And once again, we arrive at the problem of powerful dorks. I'm quite certain that Francis Collins actually believes the things he's saying, which makes it even scarier that he's the one in position to continue doing this. He and Fauci both need to be gone immediately and they can take everyone else in these fields with them. If they want to continue to do this work, they can all go to China, join the Chinese Communist Party, and never come back to America ever again. How about that? That seems like a pretty good deal. If I was the prosecutor and I was offering them that as a plea deal, they should take it. But consider the brazenness here. Like there's, they believe there's nothing wrong with what they've done. And even this result of this bioengineered virus leaking or being taken out of the lab intentionally and then infecting the world and contributing to 90% fewer deaths than they say, but still this monumental, earth-changing, life-changing problem. That doesn't cause him to change his position about any of this. Imagine right now that we knew American scientists were working in Nazi Germany in coordination with German scientists who were being overseen by the Nazi party. Would anyone be okay with that? Would anyone accept this as the answer? Well, we have to do this work with them. Otherwise, a pandemic might emerge and we wouldn't know how to handle it. Hey, a pandemic emerged. You caused it and you didn't know how to handle it. The public science and public health community in their response to the coronavirus has been an absolute embarrassment it is impossible to harm the scientific project more than they have and they don't even recognize it as their problem it really is incredible so we have had a massive week just wins left and right Every day, 
The truth is we had some bad days in January and a day or two that kind of sucked in November. But we have been winning every day all the time. All right. If you think otherwise, then you are being far too subjected to the central narrative. You know, it's a psyop. You know, it's a disinformation operation. Stop subjecting yourself to it. Honestly, it's good to know what they're saying. And it's good to know what your friends think. But you don't have to think, oh, yeah, they might be right this time. They haven't been right ever. Okay. Stop taking what they say and do and embodying it and letting it scare you and upset you and destroy you and make you feel like nothing is getting better. Literally everything is getting better. Every day, new people wake up. Every day, new people come to our side. And just today, Donald Trump put out that statement that I was discussing about how he's pressuring Pennsylvania lawmakers to pursue an audit. The end of that statement, he says that if you don't support it, you will never be elected again. That's not a threat. That's a promise. Donald Trump knows he has the people fully behind him on all of this. And the people are not going to accept some establishment rhino in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Arizona or anywhere else. If Republicans want to be elected, they need to stand up immediately for election security and get full forensic audits of every state in this country. If they fail to do it, they will be voted out of office if not recalled. And that's it. We win. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm Your Moderator.substack.com, where you can donate. Or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon 
back out on the rain. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!